0: Thank you for joining us in season two of the real Religion podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion.
1: Hey, Joel, good afternoon.
0: Howdy. Here we are again.
1: Yeah. Thanks for your patience last week and flexibility and apologies to our listeners as, as it, as happens to the life of clergy, um, sometimes, uh, life cycle events, uh, take priority. And, uh, unfortunately we had two funerals last week, both of, uh, dearly beloved members that, um, were very integrated into, uh, our congregational family. And, uh, it, it, it's interesting noting the funerals that kind of take a toll on you and that you really feel, um, and this was the case for both of those for me, um, but uh, again, so thank you, and hopefully we'll make this one twice as good.
0: <laughs> sure, and and funerals on the week of Halloween and All Saints Day, perfect. Uh, what better time in the Christian year right here? I, as we approach the end of the year before we get to December and Advent, we have this special holiday called All Saints Day, the day after All Hallows' Eve or Halloween, where we remember those who've died in the Lord. And we uh, we circled up, and we didn't have a particular funeral, but we did circle up. And with all those who have lost loved ones in the last year, we read their names, we rang a bell, we lit a candle. And we, we did it outside in our back garden, which is a memorial garden where ashes can be placed and a plaque put down so that this church isn't necessarily a graveyard, but it is definitely a place uh, where we hold the saints close and remember them and imagine them with us in some way permanently.
1: Beautiful. Would you describe that as a healing service?
0: A healing service? Well, it, it is supposed to be some kind of balm on the pain of grief or mourning. But uh yeah, Jesus says this weird thing. He says, Blessed are those who mourn. Um and the other translation for that word blessed is happy. Happy are those who mourn. <laughs> and I've had somebody say, I don't know why he says that. And, and my response to them after wondering about it for a while is, I think because if you've mourn, you have loved. And if you've never loved, you've never lived. So in order to truly measure life, mourning is a part of that. Uh, to have known love, to have been loved, to have grieved the end or the transition of love, uh, that is a sign that real life happened. So don't bring your mourning here as something that needs healing. Bring it here as a sign that you have lived and been loved and loved in return and let it be an encouragement to you that you've been involved in the grand life that God created us to enjoy.
1: That's great. I, I could see that as being very healing. And then one, one more question. Is it, do people who come, are they, is it kind of limited to people who've lost someone in the last year? Or do people just, it, it's open to the whole community? and. Sure. People come, yeah.
0: Yeah, there was a couple there whose parents uh, died almost a decade ago, but they came and their ashes are in the garden. And I lit candles for my mom and dad, even though they're not in the garden. And and they died 20 and 45 years ago. So uh, it's been a long time. So you had something on your mind that you wanted to start with today.
1: Yeah, I'm annoyed, Joel. And I mean, you know, of course I'm annoyed. I'm a neurotic Jew. But I'm annoyed at, and we talked about this again, and I'm sorry to bring it up again to our listeners who also may be sick of it just from their own discussions with people too, is this idea of religious exemptions. I can't let go of it. So uh, this came up for me because um, University of Georgia, it looks like, um, will require proof of vaccination or, of course, an exemption from a medical professional. And there are people who are willing to lose their jobs over it, um, but first, some of them are going to try to get a religious exemption. And I mean, I'm mean, i thinking of having a sermon this Friday for, for Shabbat just titled, There's No Such Thing as a Religious Exemption. There's certainly such a thing as you know personal integrity and personal belief that you don't want the vaccine, you're not going to get the vaccine, and I'm not going to try and argue that, um, even though I disagree with it. I won't argue it. But I will argue this concept of relig- <laughs> religious exemption because it just, it seems like such a, um, so anathema to me because a, a the decision to get vaccinated or not is so personal and religious law, certainly in Judaism and, and from what I understand from you and, and others, Christianity is also communal. And so kind of... Putting a very specific decision that lies on your morality and your unique individual beliefs and then – but but labeling it as this religious thing, ick, it's just icky to me yeah. and kind of hypocritical. I mean, I really don't like it.
0: I don't either. Um, I, when I hear somebody trying to claim some kind of religious exemption for communal safety – What I hear them saying is, I want personal power, privilege, access to all the benefits of the community, but none of the responsibility (laughs) to the community. That's a
1: really good way to put it.
0: (laughs) And what I want to tell them is, then you don't want community. You, You don't get a personal religious exemption so that you have access and benefits to the community. What you get is personal removal from the community that you have choose chosen not to be in in commune with. Um. And what I guess what they want is like, I, if University of Georgia, they want access to the professors and the degree and the football games and the parties, but they don't want the personal responsibility to keep those who are also at those things with them safe from their COVID breath. So, <laughs> dead comment.
1: Well, and you know, we are number one. And uh, as far as Siri told me, the Braves won the World Series last night. Um, so, Georgia, Georgia's definitely hopping right now.
0: Yeah, I had uh, somebody who says they like me say, hey, way to go. Atlanta finally got a championship. And I'm like, now, wait a minute. Atlanta United won the whole thing in 2018. Don't you forget <laughs> soccer.
1: <laughs> I was waiting. I knew that's where you were going. I just didn't. Yes. Yeah, Joel was uh, gracious enough to bring me along to a game. Uh, I guess that was three years ago. And uh, it, was, it was somewhat religious because there was a giant – quote, um, from Hillel, famous rabbi of the first century, who said, if I'm not for myself, who am I, if not now, when? And that was just, uh, hugely located, which is also, you know, it's kind of a motto for teamwork too, which, mm-hmm. which was interesting. And of course, one of the builders is, is, is a very well-known Jewish philanthropist in Atlanta, but, uh, but alas, we digress. <laughs> what should we talk about other than, uh, Religious vaccines and soccer.
0: On this uh, season two of tough text, problematic, troublesome text, today you and I put on our list those texts that describe uh, slavery or the oppression, the allowable or even God-prescribed oppression of others because they are of a different nation or a different different tribe or a different race or a different – in some way from the mainline, the beloved community of God, the chosen community of God. And, and there are texts from the Hebrew Bible as well as the Greek New Testament that describe these other humans who are also creatures of God in ways that doesn't sound godly. So let's uh, find a few of those texts and see if we can unpack them with each other and see what they might be telling us about those who wrote them down or the God that they're supposed to point to.
1: So very early on in the Torah, we have this interesting and troubling encounter uh, with Sarah and Abraham. So, uh, you know, Abraham was promised by God all of these children, the children as as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And here he is, 99 years old. No children. So, you know, God's promise hasn't come to fruition yet. And not only is he frustrated, although he does not express it, to be fair. Um, but Sarah is frustrated. And so, fair, again, fairly early on in our Torah, it's Genesis chapter 16. Sarah says to Abraham, Hey, man, I'm haven't had children. Maybe I'm barren. Maybe something's wrong with me. I'm, of course, paraphrasing. So, Instead of having children with me, go ahead and consort with my maid, my um my uh, Hagar and have a child. And Abraham, being a dutiful husband, <laughs> follows what Sarah says and um Ishmael is born. And in almost immediately, Sarah can't stand the sight of Hagar. And she commands Abraham to banish her, which he does and there's this interesting um, and fairly powerful um, uh, it's not an image per se but uh, uh, experience that Hagar has where God basically appears to her and um, that even though they're banished, you know she too ha- has a certain blessing of sorts and this is thought to be the birth of the Arab people and of course the um, the unfortunate fighting that has happened for 4,000 years is biblically traced back to this, to, to the differences between Isaac, the Jewish child, and Ishmael, the Arab, uh, or, and retrojecting back, Muslim child. And it's very shortly after this that Sarah does get pregnant with Isaac. Um, but this story never... Um, it never finds a harmonious ending. It's not like the story later with Jacob's brothers that, you know, sell Jacob into slavery that years and years later they meet and there's forgiveness and a reunification. I mean the, the, the story with Ishmael kind of never gets rectified, or the or the struggles rather. And it's it's I mean, we use this word all the time, but it's problematic. Yeah. And, you know, Hagar is seen as less than Certainly by Sarah and then by, um, you know, the transitive property, I guess, by Abraham. And, and it, it, it's a very early look at this idea that the chosen people, even though that's not a term here yet, uh, has more, perhaps more importance, more blessing, more relevance. Um, so yeah, again, very, you know, an early example of that kind of, idea
0: there are several problems in there whoever abraham and sarai are they own slaves um they own other human beings uh some might say they're their servants uh either way either they're subjugated into the house of abram and sarai uh, because they are of a different nationality or a different race or a different class maybe Uh, but they were boy it, it, they were indentured into this, uh, this couple as unpaid, maybe servants who had very few benefits and very little wealth and were under the thumb of Abram and Sarai to do whatever they wish. So much so that Sarah can send her servant girl, slave girl employee to her own husband, uh, to have a child. And the slave girl doesn't really have a say in that. Uh, She has to do it or risk something, her job, her livelihood, her life. I don't know. Um, What is beautiful, and the only thing that helps me a little about that whole story, is when Abram kicks uh, Hagar and Ishmael out uh, on Sarah's instruction, God has a conversation with Hagar, um, and speaks to her um, and wonders, "Hey, who? Where are you coming from, and where are you going?" And she says something like, "I'm, I'm running away," and and God wants to make sure that she knows you're not alone. Um, like he he tells her to go back to her mistress, but also promise her you're going to be the mother of a great nation for me. Um, And he'll be wild, um, and he'll be at odds with others, but there's no condemnation of this child from God, even though Sarah condemns the child, and even Sarah condemns the girl that Sarah
1: sent to her own husband to have the child. Um, and then blames him I didn't include this in my summary and then blames him after she gets pregnant that this is your fault yeah. and Abraham's just kind of like I was just doing what you said
0: <laughs> yeah but he should have known better <laughs> right even if your wife tells you to do to have uh, relations with another woman don't you do it <laughs> yeah don't do it <laughs> that is a trap
1: just asking for trouble. Uh.
0: Well, and in there you see the the subjugation of of women to men. You see the subjugation of slaves or servants to the wealthy. You see the subjugation of children uh, who are just, gosh, objects. Uh, and the in, in you that know the,
1: the the issue with this with slaves is a, a real tricky one because you know slave of course has a. Connotation and a whole penumbra of meanings in English, certainly in America as well, that it doesn't necessarily have in the Bible. And by the way, I am not trying to justify it. I'm not saying um, that it was right or this is a product of the times. Um, but it is different. And one of the things that I've that I learned in rabbinical school and just through reading is that there were Rules of treatment on how to treat these servants or slaves, if you will. And, um, you know, some will say that, uh, you know, Judaism had a higher moral code because, yes, we, we did have slaves, servants, but there were rules regarding, you know, treating them as human beings and, um, and not doing Whatever you wanted with them or to them, Um, and you know that 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 plays into kind of the Bible as history and reading in our own morality. And I mean that there's a lot of complexity there. Um, But I think for our listeners, it is important that you know we read the word slave, and it is not exactly the same. Um, The other thing I I talk about all the time with my congregation is the word rest. You know, when we talk about resting on Shabbat, rest in, you know, just common conversation means something very different than rest on Shabbat means. And so, there's similar words like that. Yeah,
0: there's a, a debate about if we take our modern definitions of slavery, slave versus servant, versus employee, right? The, when, when we're reading the Hebrew Bible or the Greek New Testament and seeing this word slave or servant, we need to differentiate, are we really meaning slave? Like, I own you. You do whatever I say, and I can kill you and throw you in the river if I want because you're mine, versus servant. Okay, you're underpaid, and I'm taking advantage of you But there are rules for how I have to work with you versus um, employee and worker, employer employee, where we've come to a mutual agreement that for your services, I'm going to compensate you this much and you have the freedom to come and go and to do the job and to get paid or not. Um, And even then, there can be some power dynamics, some subjugation going on, but uh, a lot of times in the Bible, we'll quickly use this term "slave" or "servant," and and sometimes it means slave, and sometimes it means servant, and sometimes it means employee, and we'll have to be a little careful. But when in doubt, assume it's a little worse than we think, <laughs> not a little better, uh, because it in these times people were owned, people were. Um, possessed and under the thumb sometimes Um, they were gifted into a family and handed down and and in our modern time any of those situations should be problematic and those realities affect the way the bible was written and the way we read it even today
1: oh absolutely um so that's my uh, the Torah example. What r- do you have? One from the New Testament or, or elsewhere in the Bible? Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> right?
0: Yeah, the New Testament is just loaded with them, um, and and these were used. Unfortunately, in the time of early uh, America, a lot of the texts of the Greek New Testament were used to justify. Uh, the way that America birthed itself on slave labor. Uh, we we basically read the Bible, found in there that slaves, you are required to obey your master. And we used that uh, against the slaves who fought or demanded freedom or wanted fair treatment. And wow, you know, that just... That hurts um, to know we went there and, and did that. Uh, in the same place where we said, slaves, obey your masters, um, in that same text, there's wives, obey your husbands.
1: I was just thinking that, literally just thinking that as you were, yeah.
0: Right. And then it will say, and husbands, love your wives, um, and masters, treat the slaves well. That doesn't offset the uh, power imbalance that the text was attempting to speak to. What it was trying to do, though, the way I, I read it, is it was trying to point to a future that the Greek New Testament also speaks to. In Christ, there is no male or female. There is no slave or free anymore. We are all one in, in Christ Jesus, uh, a text from Galatians. And that imagination of what we're working toward undermines any uh, other New Testament text that builds up the power dynamic of s- master over slave or man over woman. Uh, but a lot of people forget to let that text have more power in how they do male-female relationships or, or master-slave relationships, uh, back then. And where it's part of why the Christian tradition, especially the evangelical tradition in America, is kind of resistant to talking about how we have done race and male-female relationships um, for thousands of years and in this country for hundreds of years.
1: Yeah, and and I, as you were talking, I was also thinking, you know, this might be a little meta, and I, I don't mean Facebook meta. I mean, <laughs> what – uh, meta actually means of people of all religions who take you know who hold the Bible in in high esteem or you know as a sacred text, subjugating others that don't, and so it, it yes, there are certainly stories within our traditions of better than stronger than holier than, but we as human beings living out our traditions also do that to each other and and i think sometimes it's very it, it's implicit i mean even i think the best of us who are um I, I don't want to use the word liberal um but who do believe strongly that you know everyone each you know all religions have Holiness to them, there is no correct, there is no incorrect, but, you know, there is holiness in you as a Presbyterian and for me as a as a Jewish person. But even within our sects and denominations, I think we can't help sometimes but judge others that do follow or don't follow or don't come to services enough or don't come to our programs enough or, I mean, all, all those sorts of things. Now, <laughs> they're not going to be our slaves, God forbid, Um but I do think there is a judgment of, you know, th- they're not as good as us.
0: Hmm. Wow, I haven't taken it to that um, point where the the presumed division of power that slavery texts uh, point to from, you know, the, the wider scriptures, how that can be equal to any power dynamic of today, it, although it's there. Um um, I I just, for some reason, continue to put slavery, like owning another human and truly having power over them, to be way worse than uh, looking across at someone and thinking, well, they're not doing the right thing, so never mind. Uh, I, I Oh,
1: for sure. No, no, no. I, I'm not equating the two by any means. Yeah. Um, just thinking about the resonance of, of kind of, of these themes, right? And how they, e- even if we don't want them to or we don't mean them to, we can't help but judge and divide and, and organize by better, worse than, stronger, weaker. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think about this a lot in my smicha, which is the document saying that I'm a rabbi. Um, one of the phrases that's conferred upon me, or that's not accurate. One of the uh, responsibilities that is conferred upon me as a rabbi is to judge. Hmm. And that, that's an interesting and powerful and heavy responsibility. Yeah. Because on the one hand we say all the time, Oh, don't judge, don't judge. But of course we judge and we should do. Yes. Uh, You know, um, I mean I know what people mean when they say that colloquially colloquially and there is a um I think there's an importance to kind of letting people express themselves before leaping to judgments and things like that there <laughs> I just said it without meaning to um but yeah I think we we how can you teach religion in an impartial way where there's no judgment I I don't know that you can let alone want to
0: Yes, and I I think the whole point of religion in some way is to make judgment calls constantly about what does or doesn't uh, fulfill the grander call to holiness and justice and righteousness. And so we each make quick uh, judgment calls based off of who we think God is and what God wants. Um, For me, the question becomes, am I allowed... To impose those judgments on others. And as clergy, <laughs> just like what you said, the answer is kind of yes. Like, that is my job. Um, it is to teach and remind a gathered group of people what we say and believe God's will is. Now, I don't do that alone. I I do that with a session, with elders, with deacons, with a hierarchy around me. And if I make a bad judgment or judgment call about um, a power dynamic that shouldn't be or somebody's abuse of power over others in some weird way, um, I might be wrong. And if so, the grander, wider church corrects me, I hope, um, and shows me I was misusing my power as clergy against someone and uh, pulls me back into shape. But all these problematic texts about slavery and servants and um, obedience because you were born into a position that the rest of the world considers lower or has a right to own. Boy, yuck. I, I don't know what to do with those texts sometimes.
1: And you mentioned um, gender. I mean, that that is a big one. I mean, 50%. <laughs> Of humanity didn't have the, and sadly still doesn't to an extent, but certainly in the Bible didn't have the same rights. And, you know, in Judaism, this is still a problem with regard to marriage. So without getting off too much into the weeds, um, in Judaism, a divorce is called a get, if you were spelling it in English, G-E-T. And it's a document. It's kind of an official document. And the husband has to give it to the wife. So in traditional Judaism, if a wife wants a divorce and the husband doesn't, no divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, And the husband has a lot of power. And the reason, and some people say, well, what's the big deal? The woman can just leave and be with another man. Who cares? Well, not in Judaism's eyes. And what happens is if there's not a get, if there's not an official Jewish divorce, even if there is, by the way, let's say they live in America, even if there is a legal divorce, it doesn't matter because if the woman does meet another man, and remarries him civilly right which she certainly can do and has children with them those children are considered mamzerim bastard children mm-hmm. because she didn't get the get and that that's one example of so many of how you know Jewish law traditionally um really uh, leans toward the men in terms of power and choice and agency and and so on.
0: And because we have texts that do that, uh, that seem to say, oh, you're male. Okay, well, then you have more God power than females. Therefore, they have to do what you say, God says. Um, They don't get to hear God personally. Thankfully, Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek New Testament, there are a lot of women whose words about God, what God said, what God wants, are remembered. And even though the culture of the time did not give them power, uh, very much power, every now and then one of their songs or one of their uh, acts or they were, they were finally seen for the, yes. the special power that they did have in the culture, even if it always came with the cultural baggage of being female. So you'll find uh, you know, Miriam or Hannah's song being remembered throughout all time. You'll find other women who are uh, priestesses or prophetesses or courageous leaders. The story of Ruth or Esther Put women in a place where they unfortunately are still subjugated under male power, but somehow use God power to undermine male power and to bring something that looks more fair, more just, more equitable, Um, which is why when people try to use the scriptures to say, well, women have to be under men. I'm like, then why does Ruth exist? Why does Esther exist? Those all of those stories would have been wiped out, and it would have been written from a male perspective. They were written that way to show that the males' misuse of power needed to be corrected, and the the
1: females in those stories do that. And there was something that just left my mind: the train derailed. <laughs> oh, uh, the, the, and in Judaism that helps explain the power of Midrash, which I think we've talked about before. But, you know, a Midrash is a some sort of story that was created to help explain something else. And so, you know, people are still creating the plurals Midrashim. And so what we've done in the last 20, 30 years is elevate these stories and create Midrashim surrounding them that really lifts up, um, the voices of women or the subjugated or people of color and all, you know, all of that sort of thing. And, you know, with regard to women specifically, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Um, very recently in the past few years, there's a, a Torah commentary that's called a women's Torah commentary. And, um, you know, all the scholars that um, created it were are women, um, but also all of the points made whether they be linguistic or historical or mid- or midrash, have to do, again, with elevating um, either a woman's voice or a theme, possibly relating to women, that sort of thing. And, and th- that's something that I love about modern Judaism is that midrashim can kind of bring that back.
0: There's a... There's a problematic text in the Great New Testament. It's uh, supposedly a letter of Paul and, and it very well might be. It's very short. It's, um, it's called Philemon. And Paul writes from prison to, uh, Philemon, a friend and a co-worker, um, saying, I have received your slave, your runaway slave, Onesimus. Um, and he's been with me. Um, he ran from you, Philemon, and he ran to me. Um, perhaps he was useless to you or, or something and you dismissed him, but whatever it is, I'm sending him back to you. And Paul calls Onesimus the slave. He says, I'm sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. Um, I wanted to keep him with me, but I hope you receive him back no longer as a slave but as a brother. Um, hmm. And so if if you consider me your teacher of what it means to be in Christ and to walk life as Christ imagined we would, um, then you welcome him home as if he is me. Uh, so you know, the, the requirement of hospitality to a guest, especially a, an important guest in your house, was very high. And people would put – they would fulfill that requirement for their guests by using their slaves and servants to prepare Hmm. the meals and the space. Um, Imagine Onesimus ran or was kicked out of Philemon's house because he was a bad slave or wasn't doing things right, and Paul is telling him to welcome him home as a special guest. Um, I promise you that text was not used in the (laughs) mid-1800s. In in uh, in America,
1: <laughs> right in the
0: thirteen colonies. So
1: I sense that you're correct. Yeah.
0: What would it look like if white preachers in the South in 1850 had told their masters, "Hey, stop doing that. Um, in fact, stop asking them to make your food and food for your guests. Instead, next time they come to the house, you work in the kitchen." You set the table for them. They sit down at the table. You treat them as the special guest, as the brother, as family, um, and you serve them um, and no longer abuse them, take advantage of them, um, and uh, push on them to keep them in line so that you can have your luxuries. Uh, there, is, there is counter-testimony to slavery in Scripture, but unfortunately at different times the christian church has ignored the counter testimony
1: and as you speak the thought occurs to me that america is no different i mean what what everybody knows you know we the people and yet those people had slaves and and somehow that discrepancy didn't right it, Either it didn't occur to them or it did and they didn't care. I mean, it's such a cognitive dissonance.
0: And then we counted them as a ratio, three-fifths of a human, just so that the South would have enough senatorial power. Um, right. But then we blocked them from voting. We're still blocking people of color, people we don't like, or people who are poor from voting um, because we don't want them to be to be our brothers and sisters. In Christ. We want them to be servants and employees and to to keep the economy running, but not to be equal and and fully included when the great testimony of the gospel is their equality and full inclusion in everything is the only path to something that looks Christian. Tove. You know, the grand slavery story is there came a pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph. Uh, yeah, I know that one. <laughs> it's like the whole dern Torah centers around this arrogance of a, of a people and a leader who decided, you know what, they're different. Um, their skin is different. They're from a different place. They speak a different language. They worship a different God. I guess we can own them and make them work for us um, and enslave them. And the whole I – mean, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, it is escaping God's desire to escape that kind of uh, subjugated relationship.
1: And what's – important to me, I guess, theologically, about the slavery story in that framing of, you know, immediately or shortly after the story of Jacob and Joseph, uh comes this new pharaoh that knows not Joseph and so wh- whereas Joseph was the pharaoh's vizier kind of the second in command and his brothers were you know living high on the hog and were and were kind of in now the jews were on the outs and not only that but started to be slaves you know god is not explicitly in that story it's it's the pharaoh so you you could argue one could argue that well, you know, that wasn't God that was, you know, going back to free will or something. But if we go back to Abraham, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, God tells Abraham, it's it's kind of like, uh, oh my gosh, a Christmas story with the, the ghosts. You know, God tells Abraham, your people will be slaves for over 400 years. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what is that? Yeah. So in some ways, God, it could be argued that God sanctions it because if God is God God could have prevented it and here God is telling Abraham about it again this is even before Jacob and Joseph are born and so that's you know it that shows that the authors of the Bible the male authors of the Bible um had a very clear um it's very obvious to me that subjugation and hierarchy were were in their mindset, mm-hmm. and very much so. I'll just tell the bad joke again, which is is a bad joke, but it's a quick one. You know that you know there's the 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 joke of someone is found on a desert island and they've been there for years and the, the, the rescuers see that they've built two gorgeous buildings you know out of sand and, and salt water whatever and they say oh what's this first building oh that's the temple that's the where I pray every day I, I had to create somewhere to pray okay well then what's this other one oh I, I won't step foot in there so it's like we, we define ourselves by what we hate sometimes mm-hmm. or what we most definitely aren't. Mm. Ouch. I,
0: I've often wondered, I think there's a place in the Hebrew Bible where it says that Hagar was the Egyptian slave girl of Abram and Sarai. Uh, and if, I've often wondered if somebody kind of ever had connected Wow, Abram and Sarai's mistreatment of Hagar led to a systemic memory of oppression and pain and rejection that later backfired.
1: Joel, it makes me really nervous when you read Torah closer than I do. (laughs) Uh, And you are absolutely right uh sarai avram's wife and this of course is before their names were changed because it's before the covenant um had born no children she had an egyptian maidservant whose name was hagar very good joel
0: yeah well it's obvious right it's just odd little connection why would they bother to tell us that if they weren't showing us something um well it's
1: obvious in retrospect but yes Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was all
0: probably written in retrospect anyway, right? (laughs) They they had stories that they wrote down and edited together in retrospect when it started to make sense. Um, Yes. But that – it's made me wonder. Not that the slavery of the Israelites to Egypt is fair. It isn't, right? Nor is it justified – by Abram and Sarai mistreating their Egyptians. No, but this
1: could be kind of a teleology for it. Right. So, and it,
0: it makes me think of critical race theory today, right?
1: As we were talking about before the show, yes. Yeah. It's
0: like, if I am not aware that, okay, my ancient, ancient family, meaning hundreds of years ago, owned slaves, therefore that family that we owned, and I don't know if they did or not, but they probably did um, – That family grew up with very little wealth and my family grew up with all of our wealth that we got off the back of their labor. Well, that wealth has been passed down from generation to generation to generation in my family, even though it wasn't really mine. I, I earned it on the backs of people I owned and they never, they never had that. So, and then by, my friends and I wanted to keep that benefit of having them work for us so that we could have their benefits, so we deprived them of voting rights. We deprived them of the ability to own property. Um, we redlined districts in our cities where they couldn't get a house, and if they could buy a house, then they had to pay more for the mortgage so that their wealth never got to stay inside their family for fear that if they ever became truly equal, uh, we would lose something. And, and granting them equality. And, and that is a strange Christian way to do civilization, but it's, it's still in the way we do life today in America. We still, yeah. we, if you look and see, it's not because a family over there is uh, lazy or uneducated. It's because somehow the systems that we've had in place for hundreds of years have deprived generations from education have deprived generations from um, wealth that passes down from home ownership or something and and that that uh, I don't know tidal wave of suffering tracks mm-hmm. back to slavery.
1: Well on that happy note
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, did you watch the Braves game?
0: I I turned it on and then four hours uh, – then I turned it back off and four hours later, I turned it on and it was still going. Um, and then I watched the last inning and a half. As
1: baseball happens. Well, um,
0: especially World Series baseball where it's all about oh, the yeah. commercials and not about the game. I mean, yeah. every bottom and middle of an inning is sell, 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 sell. Uh, it, Wow. If they could learn how to quickly transition and only
1: do ads, but baseball's always been like that where they've been there've been commercials every three outs. I hate At least it that I remember, oh yeah, it's awful, just
0: hate it if they would do it, if they would take okay you're you're changing out pitchers and they've got to warm up fine, but guess what that pitcher's warm <laughs>
1: right he <laughs>
0: he warmed up for fifteen minutes back and the way did,
1: did you see PETA no longer wants to call it a bullpen? No. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah, they want to call it an arm pen.
0: Re- release the bull or release the arm. Okay. Maybe they should call it an armpit.
1: pit. <laughs> certainly certainly human enough. All right, my friend. Oh, and you know, in, in two days, uh, are you going to get Vanguard?
0: I saw that it is available, but I haven't I haven't plopped down the cash for it yet.
1: But to, I don't think it's available yet, I think it comes out Friday
0: Yeah, you can go ahead and pre-order it
1: though Oh, you can pre-order yeah, yeah, and but then it, yeah I feel like you and I need to get that, don't we?
0: <laughs> You'll play it for about a week, and I'll play it for like a year and a half
1: Well no, because it's, uh, it's still Warzone Yeah, yeah Which we haven't played in months together, can we fix that please? <laughs> sure Publicly, can we, what are you doing tonight? Uh, you know
0: what I? Jill said to me last night. I said I'm tired, honey, and she goes, "Well, think about it. You worked Saturday and Saturday night and Sunday night and Monday night and Tuesday night." And I was like, "Crap!" <laughs> I really yeah. did. So yeah, yeah. I'm that, gonna watch a I'm gonna, gonna watch an Atlanta you. United game tonight, though, buddy.
1: Oh, that's nice. Good for you. <laughs> okay. All right, man. Well, we I will talk soon. This was great talking to you, and we'll see you next week.
0: All right peace out all and keep it real thank you for joining us on the religion podcast today where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion i'm reverend joel talbert and on behalf of rabbi eric linder and all the religion fans out there we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to religionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.